we cry out, Jesus, in our desperation, in our longing, we lift our eyes to the heavens. The Savior that was promised reached down to us, becoming flesh. At his entrance, they laid palms at his feet, as today, in his presence, we fall to our knees. We cry out to him, hanging on the cross, the righteous one whose blood broke the curse. With an act of love that saved our souls, overflowing redemption making us whole. No nail to the bones could hold him. No crown of thorns could shame him, because he is the one. No tomb could contain him. Death could not stop him. He conquered the grave and rose from death victorious. We cry out, Jesus, 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 you are the resurrection and the life. In you, all things come alive. We will forever declare the mighty power of your name. We cry out with everything we have. We need you, Savior, and nothing else, because in you, we are saved by grace. Your glory will shine upon the world, and every tongue will cry out, Jesus is the Lord. Um, I would love to tell you this is the, the Palm Sunday with kids and palm branches and a donkey and all the things, but the truth is this is a Palm Sunday message I had never explored before. Um, this is not necessarily the easy Sunday school Palm Sunday message, nor is it really quite very cheerful. Uh, but it is the truth of the Word of God. We invite you into it to ask the Lord what He would do in you through it. Amen? This message, honestly, it, it was very... I go to a writing retreat twice a year, and so we sit with Pastor Nathan, Pastor Mike Melito from Eagle Creek, Pastor Kathy and myself, and Pastor Derek joined us and we were talking about this Palm Sunday message, we had to have this conversation three times because this is such a, I don't use the word wonky. <laughs> That's what came to my mind. It's not wonky, but it's definitely not 28 through 44 like Alana just read to you. So it's a sobering message, but it's true. Um, and it makes Easter Sunday all that much more glorious. Amen. All right, so if you want to bookmark in your Bible, we will we'll be in Luke chapter 19, and we will also be in Matthew chapter 11. So if you want to get both of those ready to go, um, that's where we're going to begin. And if you're in Luke chapter 19, you would think we would start in verse 28, where sweet Alana started us off, but we're not. We're going to jump down to verse 41, uh, and Jesus... When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
So typically when we come into a holiday, especially, I mean, if you looked at your Bible where verse 28, it probably says triumphal entry, right? And that's usually where we would begin. Um, But we're going to look at what was Jesus doing before he rode the donkey into the city? What was happening that led up to that? Um, And and there's, there's a lot, actually, that goes on. But Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, we're gonna, I'm going to repeat this later because you need to understand the deep grief and sorrow he felt over the city. This is the city of David. These are his people, and he knows they don't get it. It's that of a parent weeping over a prodigal child. His heart begins to break, and Jesus' heart is going to continue to break from that moment all the way to the cross. He's going to know the betrayal of a friend. He's going to know scorn and torture like no one else could ever know. So, this Palm Sunday is more than a donkey and palm branches and hosannas. Um, And we're actually, I'm not going to read it, but if you looked back in chapter 19 to verses 1 through 10, we see the interaction with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And so Zacchaeus is short in stature, and he wants to see Jesus, and so he climbs up a sycamore tree. And Jesus approaches Zacchaeus, and he says, Zacchaeus, come on down for there, for I'm going to your house today. <laughs> it's a old school, never mind. Anywho, uh, children's pastor, it's all coming back like a flood. But um, so he approaches Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree, and he's like, Zacchaeus, you need to come down from there. Now, sycamore is bitter. Zacchaeus was in a bitter tree. And what does the Savior say? Come down from there. Come down from the bitter. That's not meant for you because Jesus himself is going to die on the bitter tree. That's not the place for Zacchaeus. And so he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And he goes into Zacchaeus' house. Now, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And if any of you have been watching the Chosen series, which I continue to promote because it's so amazing, you know how much the Jews hated the tax collectors because they were brothers. They were fellow Jews who were collecting their money on behalf of Rome. So they were hated by other Jews. They were seen as, um, I don't know, I can't think of a word. They left. <laughs> um, so they, they hated Zacchaeus because of what he did. And yet Jesus goes to his house, goes in his house. And um, the interesting thing is, he says, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of men has come to seek and save the lost. So he is saving even the evil tax collectors and given Zacchaeus permission to fellowship with him, to sit at the table with him, and to have his salvation. So all of this is happening, and you've got people traveling with Jesus, right? The disciples are with him. You have people who've been listening in. Some of the Pharisees are with him. And it's interesting. He's at Zacchaeus' house. So imagine being at the house, and he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. And I don't know, maybe he steps out the front door, whatever that looked like. But all the people are there. And then, oddly enough, he goes into a parable. 
He goes into this parable. The next thing that's going to happen after this parable is he's going to be seated on the donkey and ride into the city. So why? So let's listen to this parable. Um, We pick up in verse 11 in chapter 19 of Luke. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. When you hear Hosanna, Hosanna, that means save us now. Deliver us today. That's what they thought was going to happen. That's what they were expecting from Jesus. He has come today. Today's the day, y'all. Woohoo! But Jesus, they don't understand. They don't understand what he's doing. And so we don't particularly look at this particular part of Scripture because, quite frankly, it's going to paint kind of a harsh picture. But this is what he says before he goes into the city. He knows they have the wrong idea of what he's there to do. And he knows that when he dies, it's really going to mess up their thinking of what they thought the plan was. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him so he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is the mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10. And they said, Lord, he already has 10 minas. And he says, I tell you that everyone who has has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he does have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the last thing Jesus says before he goes into Jerusalem. So why did he tell the story now? Why this harsh parable? Well, the day of visitation has come. The king has come. And in this parable, you have servants, you have citizens of the city, and he calls for the slaying of those who will not accept him as king. And as Jesus gets ready to enter through the gates of Jerusalem, there's an expectation of how you receive a king. See, throughout the Bible, you can see what happens when a king approaches a city. So how does a city properly receive a king? Well, in the ancient picture, when a king approached a city, they were all to present themselves at the gate and open up the gates to receive the king and welcome him in. 
However, you'll see that there are cities that rejected a king because they refused to open the gates. And this is where we go to the book of Matthew. So if you want to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, we'll be in verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, Tyre and Sidon were sister cities. Sidon was a city that was um, on the coast, and Tyre was actually an island city. It was surrounded by the sea. Alexander the Great, uh, some of this is pointed to in Daniel chapter 8, which we won't go into. I mean, we could literally sit here for hours and dig into all of this, but we'll spare you that. But uh, Alexander the Great conquers Sidon. He goes up to the city of Sidon, and he says, open up your gates, and they refuse. So he goes in and takes it. He takes the city. So then he approaches Tyre. Now Tyre, again, is this island surrounded by water, so he approaches, he's, he's at the, the shore, and, and Tyre sees him. You know, they have towers so they can see what's going on, and they see him and all of his men, and they are, they are decided, we are not accepting this king. We are closing our gates, we are batting down the hatches, everyone at the tower, we are defending ourselves. And they actually had a huge, like, wall to defend the city, and they were ready to defend it. So Alexander the Great approaches the city of Tyre, and they say to him, good luck, we're surrounded by water. You can't possibly do to us what you did to Sidon. We are not opening our gates to you. So Alexander the Great is so determined, and you can check this out if you look up the siege of Tyre, there's a video about it, that he actually begins to build a causeway to get to the city. And so as he fills in the sea, as he gets closer to the city, they see him and they start attacking from their walls. So what does he do? He builds two towers, puts up his own men with weapons, and they battle back and forth while he continues to build his way into the city. So ultimately, Alexander the Great does take Tyre. He does destroy the city. So Alexander the Great also at one point is approaching Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the priests have decided we are not welcoming this king. We are closing our gates. We are defending ourselves. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be war. But God intervenes, and he gives the high priest a dream. And he tells the high priest, you are to present every priest out in the front of the gate with the gates open to receive him. So Alexander the Great and his men, they approach the city. He sees the priests. He comes up to the gate where the priests are, and he bows before the high priest. And he says to him, your God appeared to me, and he told me not to destroy the city, but to offer sacrifices instead. And so Alexander's men are like, what's the matter with you? Why are you bowing before this priest? What are you doing? And he said, I do not adore him but the God who honored him with his priesthood 
for I saw this very person in a dream wearing that exact habit, his priestly robes. So there's a way you receive a king, and then when you reject a king, and the consequences are very different. In John 19, you see the stubbornness of the Jews, and I say that because we are all stubborn. Some of us got an extra dose. But in John 19, where the Jews are yelling for the crucifixion of Jesus, there's a moment where Pontius Pilate, he says to them, he says, what? Would you have me crucify your king? And what do they say? Do you remember what they say? We have no king but Caesar. They've rejected their king. Not only that, but later, when Caesar does come to to be king, what do they do? They shut the gates. They keep him out. And Titus comes in 70 AD and destroys the city and the temple. Scripture calls them stubborn people, which is true, but I have to say we are all kind of like that, and this message isn't about us being the ones who get it, because we're usually the ones who don't. (laughs) So, it continues in verse 23. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. So these cities, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, they were not cities of God. They did not honor God. They did not worship God. They had other gods. Immorality was well known. Bethsaida, one of the cities he curses, is where Peter, Andrew, and Philip are from. Bethsaida is the city where we believe the the loaves and the fishes miracle took place for the healing of a blind man. They have seen the works of Jesus in Bethsaida, and some of his very disciples are from there. Capernaum? Capernaum is where Peter is from. It's where his house was. They too, that's where they had church, was at Peter's house. They had seen and known the miracles of Jesus. So know that there is a harsher judgment for those who know and don't accept the king than there is for those who don't know the king. I mean, you can talk about the immorality in Sodom all you want. It's real. It's true. But the truth of the matter is, if you know about Jesus, you've heard the name, and you don't accept him as king, it's worse. We're going to go back to verse uh, Luke 19 through 27, or 1927. Because as we go through this, it's not just rejecting a king, they're rejecting a compassionate king. Like, compassion? He literally just told a parable where people are slaughtered because they merely rejected a king. But he is compassionate, and I'll explain why. In verse 27, we repeat that verse. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Sounds harsh. Sounds judgmental. But let me tell you, I'm probably going to get ahead of myself. If there's not a line drawn with those who reject the king, How do you protect those in the kingdom? 
We'll come back to that. Luke 19, 35 through 44, they brought it to Jesus, the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So I'm going to give you a little interesting bit of trivia that you can look up in Google later and share with all your friends with how smart you are. Pastor Micah, wait, wait a minute, I just said smart. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Pastor Micah is it's amazing how he can regurgitate scripture and, and connect it to culture, like how his brain works, I don't understand. But it is interesting to know that stones actually emit frequencies. Did you know that? I did not know that. So I thought it was really interesting. Becca picked out that video you saw, the Palm Sunday video, and it showed the stones rumbling. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That if we stopped praising God, the very stones emit frequency up to heaven. Isn't that cool? I thought that was cool. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I just thought it was cool. <laughs> but he says that um, if, I, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What he's actually talking about is what's going to happen when the city is overturned by Titus. In verse 41, he drew near and saw the city. He wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't understand what was happening. This is the visitation of their king. This is the moment to receive him. This is the moment to accept him. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. This is the city of David. These are his people, and he is the one. He's there, and he knows it, and they're rejecting him, and his heart is breaking. This is the heart of a parent with a prodigal child. Please, 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 don't you see? Don't you see what I'm doing? Come on, come on, come on. The urgency and the urgency that he has is because there's time. time. There's a timeline to everything. And the day to receive the king will eventually go away. Eventually time will be up. To reject a compassionate king still incurs consequences from the king. And when we look at the parable of the ten meanest again, where those cast, he's casting out those who reject him, where it sounds harsh, we have to think of heaven and the promise given to those of us who are citizens of the kingdom. What does he promise heaven is going to look like? No more pain, no more crying, no more anger, no more war. Everyone will be healthy and strong. There'll be joy, no more sorrow. That's the joy set before us. That's heaven. And so what does he do? He guards heaven. Because imagine if he said, well, look, first of all, if he said any other way is fine, 
you can have your truth, and you can have your truth, and you can have your truth, and your truth, and your truth. Um, And because I'm compassionate, y'all can just come in. How long until sin and humanity corrupts heaven? How long until there's pain in heaven? If everyone is allowed in heaven without accepting the king. And here's the, (laughs) I mean, think about the lack of logic in the idea that there are other ways. If there was another way, if Buddha could get you there, if being a good person could get you there, if, if humanism could get you there and all of your works, why in the world would God send his only son to be tortured and crucified on a cross? It doesn't even make sense. There's no logic to it. If there's another way, Jesus even said, Lord, what did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But there is no other way. There was no other way. Today, there is still no other way. This is it. You receive the king and welcome him in and have the joy that abounds in the kingdom of heaven or you reject the king and the day will come where there is no more opportunity to receive him. The day will come and he will say, take those who don't believe in me and cast them to their consequence. This is a harsh word, y'all, but I'm telling you, time is of the essence. We should feel an urgency for the kingdom of God. There is no more. Compassion is not leaning in to someone's wants and their emotions. It's not leaning in to the truth that they want so desperately to be right for their own comfort. The kingdom of God demands that we tell the truth. The kingdom of God demands that we acknowledge and understand there is only one way. And if you don't get that, it is not going to go well for you. And out of the love of the compassionate king, you see, the thing is, he paid that price. There is no destruction for you. There is no cross for you. The king himself took it. What other king have you ever known to voluntarily die for his subjects? It's never happened. In the story of Alexander the Great, he was on his way to attack the city, and God intervened, right? Gave a dream. Gave a dream to a priest. Gave a dream to a king. And changed everything. And right now, we have the gift of time. But it's taken. We have time. Jesus hasn't come yet. It's not too late. And the day will come, though, and the opportunity will be over. And so as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, don't you see his heart's breaking because he is literally getting ready to die to make the way. He's saying, this doesn't have to be hard for you. Just receive me. And yet they reject him. Crucify him, his own people. Crucify him. Those who accept the king get the promises of his kingdom. Those who reject him get the consequences. This is not a warm, fuzzy Palm Sunday message, is it? But don't you see the glory of Easter? Don't you see the glory? See, the glory is we get to bring God's kingdom here now. I'm one of his subjects, I'm a citizen of heaven. 
I happen to live on earth and I've been put on mission. I'm made to go make disciples so that others can come to the king. And so are you. So when we look at the parable and everything we talked about and Jesus is getting ready to ride through Jerusalem, they're going to acknowledge him as king, but they're not really going to understand what all of that means. There's, you're in one of two places today. Because there is no, like, well, I'm kind of into Jesus, but kind of not. Like, there is no fence straddling where Jesus is concerned. He says, you are either for me or you are against me. 